Here we go. Ah, oh, yeah. There we go. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> okay, now we can start. Now, the last time I preached, I covered the first 10 verses of the book of Galatians. Now, it's a, it was a while ago, so I'm going to bring you back up to speed in case you weren't here or it has, you, know, you forgot. That's okay. Now, in that first section, we saw Paul summarize the reason he was, what? No. The, we saw Paul summarize the reason he was writing to the churches in the area of Galatia. Uh, the reason he was writing to these churches was because there were false Jewish Christians who had come into the churches and who had began spreading a false gospel and slandering Paul's authority as an apostle. You see, the Galatian churches at this point in time are pretty much brand new, very small little churches. They're vulnerable to false doctrine, basically. See, Paul came into the area, preached into the cities, and out of them he was able to plant a few churches. Now, after spending some time making sure that they had a, a, a basic good form of leadership and then a basic understanding of good doctrine, he left to go and continue his mission to other areas, to other Gentile areas. Now, soon after he left, these false Jewish Christians came in with a false gospel that lacked grace. Their gospel had all the same points as the true gospel, but added doing certain works of the Old Testament law to it. Essentially, they wanted to turn these Gentile Christians into good Jews. Now, the problem with that for these false teachers, is that the Galatians had a great trust in the Apostle Paul and what he had taught them. So they were naturally unwilling to listen to this new gospel. So what are these false teachers to do? Well, for them, they have a plan. The first step to turning these Christians into Jews was tearing down their trust in Paul, the Apostle, by slandering him. So they began teaching that Paul was a regular guy who made up a false message in order to get service or money from these Galatians. Now, over time, the Galatians came to agree with them. And this is the problem. Once these false Jewish Christians convinced the churches that Paul was not an apostle, they began teaching a gospel that was contrary to Paul's gospel. Now, the churches in Galatia had started to believe these lies, and now Paul was saddled with the task of trying to convince the churches and bring them back to right doctrine. Now, the first step for him would be convincing them that he really is an apostle of Christ and not just some regular guy off the street with no credibility. Thus, Paul writes the letter to the Galatians and is frustrated that he has to defend himself so soon after he finished planting these churches. And finally, in this first section, we saw the anger that Paul held against these false teachers who have done so much damage to these new Christians when he cursed them in God's name. Now, as we enter into verses 11 to 24 of chapter 1, we will see Paul defend his own authority as an apostle. He will provide three arguments for why we should see him as an apostle sent by God to preach the gospel and plant churches in his name. These three arguments for why Paul is an apostle is one, because he got the gospel from Christ himself. 
Two, because of the change that you can see in his life from before he was a believer to after he was a believer. And three, because of the testimony of other Christians. If you want to write this down, I'll repeat it again. The arguments that Paul uses to, to convince these Galatians that he is an apostle is one, that he got his gospel from Christ himself. Two, because of the change you can see from his life from before he was a believer to after he was a believer. And three, because of the testimony of other Christians. Now please open with me to Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 to 24, where I'll read. It reads this. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to, to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then, three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him for 15 days. But I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea which were in Christ. But only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. Now, the first two verses of this section concern primarily how Paul received the gospel. He says his gospel is not of human origin to point out that he didn't come up with this on his own. You see, the true gospel is alien to the human mind which has fallen in sin. It's not that the gospel could have been thought up by some average Joe on the street and just never was. No, no. It's that the true gospel could never, ever be thought up by a fallen human mind. It makes no sense. It had to be given by God. And this is exactly what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians. Our minds have been blinded by sin from allowing us to see the truth of the gospel. No sinner would ever imagine that the only way out of their problem of sin and into eternal life would be through a message that tells them that they are evil, that they can do nothing to save themselves, that if they had the choice, they would never choose to serve God, and that it is only faith in the actions of God that they can have any hope of salvation. The fact that to believe the gospel utterly humbles you is evidence that it truly is from God. 
Thus, the fact that Paul preaches this humbling message and exhibits the effects of that message in his life is evidence that what he's telling us is true and that he is an apostle of Christ. And this gospel was given to him by Jesus himself. Now, this is important for two reasons. The first reason is because this directly argues against what the false teachers were saying about Paul and his gospel, that he was making the gospel up as he went along deceiving people. While he hasn't proven anything yet, this shows us and the Galatian churches that Paul is sticking to his guns and not changing his story. Caving under pressure here on this important point shows weakness and uncertainty by Paul, something he can't afford to show. And that weakness will ultimately be seen by those watching, namely the Galatian churches, that he has been defeated in some small measure. When you know you are in the right, caving or compromising is a bad thing. Paul knows this and thus can't give a single inch to the false teacher's claims that he isn't an apostle. Now, the second reason this is important is because it makes no sense for Paul to make up this gospel. Look at verse 13. I'll read it one more time. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. As I stated in the last sermon, it is a well-known fact that Paul, before he was a Christian, was desperately attacking the church like a starving man in search of food. Paul makes use of a very strong argument here. The churches in Galatia had heard of Saul of Tarsus. In verse 14, Paul tells them that he was one of the greatest Jews of his day and well-known in Judaism. As he states elsewhere in Scripture, he was a Jew among Jews following the law to every point and even beyond that if it was possible. He tithed every time he needed to. He fasted every week. He was trained as a Pharisee. So think about this. When Jesus, in Matthew, talks to a group of Pharisees who pride themselves on following every point of the law, and he says to them that while they tithe mint and dill, they fail to follow the more important aspects of the law, namely love and kindness, Paul would have fit that description before he was saved. That was Paul. He even claimed to be as perfect as a human could be in following the law that he was not at fault. And he felt that the peak of his devotion to God was through committing holy war against this new Christianity cult. He believed that Christians were besmirching God and Judaism through their worship of Yahweh and Jesus, whom he believed to be a heretic. Thus, his efforts to be rid of these Christians was a good thing in his mind. You see, by telling the Galatian churches how driven he used to be to destroy the church that he now serves, he is making the case that the last person on earth to ever believe the gospel or think it anything other than garbage was him. And yet here he stands. In fact, Paul probably told the Galatians what he did before he was a Christian and confirmed the rumors they had heard himself while in person with them. What greater way to argue for the gospel than to show how much the gospel can change a person like it changed Paul? Since that's the case, 
why would Paul pull a 180 in his life from persecutor to preacher if what he believed wasn't true? The change in Paul's life is so abrupt that there is no explanation apart from God. It's that drastic. Let me break it down. Before Paul became a Christian, he was on the winning side, so to speak. The Christians refused to persecute the Jews, but the Jews had no problem attacking Christians. The Christians were small in number and had little to no resources. The Jews had many more followers and a mandatory tithe. The Jews were well-established in the area. The Christians are brand new and still trying to separate themselves from Judaism. And Paul basically just gives it all up and turns tail for the losing team. He went from persecuting to being persecuted. He went from having men under him and money to spare to having no one and nothing in a single day. It's like the leading quarterback in the NFL suddenly leaving his team with no explanation and then going to work with the worst team in the league. It doesn't make any sense. Paul simply didn't become a Christian because of the benefits. Because there were no benefits, but plenty of disadvantages to becoming a Christian. There had to be something else, something deeper that forces a person of the greatest willpower, like Paul, to bend. And Paul confirms that in verse 15. He says, the one who set me apart from birth, that's God the Father, who chose Paul, Saul to become Paul from his birth. And then at the proper time, God revealed Jesus Christ to Paul. Now, obviously, Paul already knew who Christ was and especially who he claimed to be. But this was a spiritual revelation where God allowed Paul to see Christ as the Savior he really is for the first time. Paul is a great example of someone being blinded from seeing the true gospel and then all in one moment having his whole life changed. And when you look at this passage as a whole, you can notice something important. And that's the difference between God's power on man and man's power over Paul. See, Christ gave the correct gospel to Paul. Men could not do it, for no man could open the eyes of Paul to see the gospel. God stopped Paul in his tracks one day. No amount of Christians could do the same thing. For in Paul's eyes, Christian blood was the same as an animal's blood. It made no difference. Their death only had meaning in glorifying God. The dedication of Saul's parents to Saul becoming a leader in Judaism had no power over God's dedication of Saul to becoming Paul and preaching the gospel to Gentiles. What we see is that while earlier I argued for Judaism being in the stronger position in this conflict, once you look closer, you see that no power from man can stop God. When you look at this conflict on a purely human level, it makes sense that the Jews would be winning and the Christians losing. But when you account for God, you can understand how the Christians are on the winning side. And it is this God whom Paul is saying that he received his gospel from. How can his gospel and him as an apostle be false when it's backed up by a changed life and multiple miracles? How can the man who is the subject of such a changed life and miracles not be who he claims to be? See, he's given up everything for this life. Now, 
we come to answer the question, why did God save Paul? Well, it was so that he could go and preach to the Gentiles, as it says in verse 16. Here, we'll read that now. I'll read verse 15, starting in verse 15. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I'll stop there. The irony here is very strong, and I want you to see it. See, God chooses the Jewish Jew who hated Gentiles in the same way he hated Christians to go to the Gentiles and preach Christ and see them become Christians. Okay? That's God's sense of humor. Okay? It's not a punishment, but it is God's sense of humor. God's kind of like this. He looks at Paul and he says, oh, so you hate Gentiles, right? Well, then you're going to spend the rest of your earthly life among those Gentiles preaching Christ to them, and you will come to love them as I do. Most people would think that the best plan would, to be, would be to have Paul be the apostle to the Jews, seeing how dedicated he was to that way of life. Who better to argue against Judaism than the guy who knew it all like the back of his hand? And now for the first time, could see how Christ really did fulfill all those messianic prophecies. Yet God chooses to send him to the Gentiles, where many would say his training is being wasted. Well, it's important to remember that God is the one who empowers his followers for service. And so it's not important whether or not his training is being wasted. We can see, so this is another piece of evidence to support the apostleship of Paul. We can see that he follows some higher calling given to him by someone with more authority than him, by the fact that he goes against what would logically be the best move for Christ, which is staying with the Jews. But now think on this. As an apostle to the Gentiles, Paul's gospel would often be the very first mention of Christ and sin and salvation to the average Gentile. Paul, a Jew among Jews, was essentially a walking Bible. His training had given him a command over the scriptures that basically no one else had. This means he was the most equipped person to go to the Gentiles alone in places where he wouldn't have a Bible on hand, where he wouldn't be able to ask another Christian for help. He had to have the answer in his head. So who better to go than the guy who knows it, has memorized it? On top of this, he was raised in Tarsus among other Gentiles. He knew their culture and was more accustomed to a culture ruled by Romans than, he, than a Jew from Israel or Peter. So after God the Father revealed Christ to Paul, Paul did the opposite of what was logical. He turned away from the centers of Christianity and ran to Arabia and then to Damascus. Now this is strange because any newly saved Christian would normally go to find another Christian or go to Jerusalem and meet with the church there to get instruction. However, he also understood that it would be extremely suspicious if he were to go looking for the Jerusalem church with his then current reputation as a killer of Christians. So instead, he goes to a place where he is less well known. Notice that in verse 17, Paul recognizes 
that he is an apostle at this point. I'll read it. He says, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. So he considers himself an apostle at that point. So we can see that just as with the other apostles, one of the requirements to be an apostle of Christ was to be personally met by Christ and be given a special mission from him. Now this brings us to our final section in the story. After three years, according to Paul, in this section, he leaves Damascus and goes to Jerusalem. Now the purpose of this visit is to speak with Cephas, who you know better as the apostle Peter. Peter, in many ways, is the opposite of Paul. Paul is sent to the Gentiles. Peter is sent to the Jews. Now, at this point, Peter is one of the main leaders in the church of Jerusalem, which is considered, quote-unquote, the capital of Christianity at the moment. Now, Paul spent about two weeks with Peter, most likely getting you know, any questions he had answered, and allowing Peter especially to observe him and his new way of life to see if what he says about himself, what Paul says about himself, is true. Now, the only other apostle to see him at this time was James, the brother of Christ. Now, the reason that's important, and the reason he mentions these two people, is because they lend weight to what he is saying here and how he's arguing for his apostleship. Basically, if you're hearing this letter for the first time and you don't believe Paul at his word, then you can go and talk to Peter or James, who are apostles. Now, who wouldn't believe Peter or James, who at this point have the greatest delegated authority in the church? Now, this doesn't mean there weren't other elders in the Jerusalem church or other churches, but it was generally understood that as apostles, they had gra the greatest authority at the moment in the church. So if James met with Paul and had no reason to throw him out of the church, then the Galatians have no reason to not believe Paul here. Now after this period of time, Paul left Jerusalem and went northeast into Syria and Cilicia, probably to continue his mission to the Gentiles. In the last three verses, he mentions he gives further support for why the Galatians should believe him and not the false teachers. As I stated earlier, it makes no sense why someone so strongly against Christianity should turn their life uh, around into the exact opposite if what they believed wasn't true. So when the Christians in Jerusalem began to hear rumors of their most aggressive persecutor preaching the gospel, everyone would have thought that the Christians would have been even a bit suspicious. However, on the contrary, the Christians glorify God because of the news. That is, they have no trouble believing that God can change a man like Saul into Paul. Those Christians in Jerusalem believe what Paul said in verse 6, that it's only by the grace of Christ we are saved. So imagine yourself as one of these early Jerusalem Christians. You spent your whole Christian life being persecuted. And if you had to put a name to that persecution, you would say Saul of Tarsus. Trained for this task from a young age, he was the best at what he did. He would root out Christians, tr track them down, and murder them. You might even have friends or family who have already been killed by him. Then one day, all of a sudden, you stop hearing news about Saul of Tarsus. It goes radio silent 
for a long time. Then years down the line, you start hearing from Pastor Peter and James that there's a new apostle, and his name is Paul. And then you hear that Paul used to be Saul of Tarsus. And your first reaction <laughs> is to say, God is good, and to rejoice. He changed a life that no one thought would ever change. And better yet, this villain has not only been converted, but he is actively spending his life spreading the gospel to those he used to spurn. No man, no matter what his allegiance, can resist the call of grace. And now Paul challenges the Galatians to choose between a man transformed by the gospel of grace or teachers who show no transformation and no grace. Paul makes the claim that the proof for his apostleship is in historical facts that the Galatians can verify for themselves. How can they verify that Paul's gospel, and thus his calling as an apostle, is not from men but from God? By looking at how Paul's life changed before he was saved, and how it changed after he became saved. By seeing how the leaders of the Jerusalem church accepted and tutored Paul, uh, uh, sorry, by seeing how the le leaders in Jer uh, the Jerusalem church accepted and tutored Paul, and finally, by seeing how the church at Jerusalem rejoiced in God because they heard that Paul had become a preacher of the gospel. So far, we have seen that Paul argues for his apostleship and authority by stating he got his gospel from Christ himself, by comparing the difference in his life from before he was a Christian to after he was a Christian, and by reminding them of what other Christians have to say. Each of these are carefully chosen in order uh, to convince the churches that he is an apostle of Christ. If the Galatians will not believe him here at this point, then they will not believe him when he presents the true gospel. Before the false teachers came in to deceive the Galatians, they had great confidence in Paul's authority and words. Paul came to them as an apostle of Christ. Now the Galatian churches are in the difficult position of either believing a letter they received from someone who wasn't there or believing the teachers who were there in the flesh before them. Now this letter doubtless would have made the false teachers extremely angry and they would have sought out any way at all to point to Paul as a villain and a criminal. Now to anyone with an open mind, Paul's argument here is extremely convincing. It relies on historical fact that witnesses can verify, lending to its strength. Honestly, really only those who are already dead set against Paul in the first place, before this letter ever, ever came, would be the ones to look for a way to defraud it. And it's important to remember that Paul isn't trying to convince the false teachers. He's already cursed them in God's name. He's not worried about people who aren't on the fence. He's worried about people, the Galatian churches, who are on the fence, who have to make a choice. He's trying to convince those who personally know him and have seen him at work for them and for God. Now what we will see after this section is Paul opening up the topic of the true gospel. He assumes, as he continues forward in the letter, that the reader now agrees that he is an apostle of Christ and thus moves on to verifying the true gospel of grace. However, for now, we will focus on what we can take away from this section. So, 
why is it important to us that we read and study Paul's argument for his own apostleship? It's not like we're apostles. And if anyone thinks they are, I, I have to wake you up from your dream. You are not an apostle. Uh, it, but what we do see here is Paul's method of proving his own credibility. Thus, we can also see the best method to prove our own credibility as Christians. Because what if someone doesn't believe you when you tell them they're a Christian? So he claims to be an apostle, so he uses several things to prove it. First, he points how he preached the true gospel from God, not from men. If you believe that he really did preach a message he got from God and, uh, and not from men, and you believe that gospel, then you too can claim that you preach a gospel that is not from men, but from God. Second, he points to his own changed life. He argues that only someone who was truly called by God could have made such a turnaround in his life as he did. The same goes for us. A great way to preach the gospel is to show how it has made a difference in our lives. And if it hasn't made a difference in your lives, or you're thinking hasn't made a difference in your lives, then you should consider whether you're doing something or not doing something that you ought to be doing. Discipleship, going to a home fellowship group, coming to church, prayer, Bible reading, etc. Because the gospel should be making changes, however slow, in your life. Third, he points to the testimony of other Christians. Now, this is one of the reasons it is important to be a part of a church community. When you tell someone you are a Christian, it is very important that there are other Christians who can back up that claim. If no other Christians can back that up, it throws into question what your walk with the Lord looks like. Therefore, when sharing the gospel, when asked, you should be ready to answer several questions. Like, who are you to tell me to believe the gospel? That's easy. I'm a sinner, just like you, no better or worse, just saved by grace. Then they ask, well, how do I know you are a Christian? Then you can point to your own changed life and invite them to church and say, well, you want to know how I'm a Christian? You can go and ask these people if I'm a Christian because they know me. That's where I go. Another thing we can learn from this is that we aren't trying to convince those who are dead set against the gospel. Now, I mean, according to the word, everyone is dead set against the gospel because they are dead in their sins. But in another sense, God is working in some hearts more than he is in others. Those who are responsive to the word are those we are to focus on. Think about this. Paul didn't write this letter to the false teachers to convince them of anything. He is already done with them. He wasn't even rebuking them. He cursed them, and that was it. He moved on. He, he was worried about the Galatian churches who were confused, who were worried, who didn't know who to turn to. The people who needed help, needed guidance. That's who he was focusing on, and we're looking for it. This means that while we should present the gospel to everyone, we shouldn't necessarily pursue those who are strongly resisting the message. It might be that God simply isn't working in their hearts at the time, or that he's going to use someone else later down the line to see them saved, or that he's not going to save them at all. However, it's pointless to needlessly nag people with the gospel. Our time is better spent on those who are responding to the word than on those who aren't ready yet. 
And let us also learn one last lesson from Paul here. The fact that Paul writes this letter at all implies that he believes his very important time as an apostle is best spent trying to rescue these churches from false doctrine. He didn't believe it was too late, and he hadn't given up hope on them either. We need to hold this same mindset. Ultimately, Paul knew that it would have to be God that would convince these churches of the truth, about him and about the gospel. But the same thing is true of us. Ultimately, it is God that has to convince unbelievers of the truth, not us. Therefore, we never give up hope on anyone because we never know what God will do. Now let's pray. Father,